Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode about stage patter and song introductions. I do want to state that I was sort of unhappy with the quality of my recording on my voice throughout the whole thing. And I think the mistake I made, in case any of you are doing any home recording, is I had an air conditioner running in a room right next to where I was recording. And I tried to use the noise reduction feature in Audacity to like zero out that air conditioner, um, you know, wind noise. It didn't really work all that good. But after I uh, listened back to it, I thought, wow, that is not really good enough. I, I wasn't too happy with that quality. But, I, but, you know, I'm experimenting all the time with different things. And today, in fact, I am experimenting with a another new way to record the podcast and I will uh, talk about that a little bit later uh, probably in the next episode because the reason the reason I say that I want to hear the results of it before I talk about it so anyway I am recording uh, by a different means today thanks to Craig and Craig, I've mentioned before when I've rattled off the, uh, the names of the Patreon patron supporters. And Craig is one of them. And he sent me a little added bonus. He heard my episode talking about how I used to record on the old Zoom H2 recorder. And he sent me an email and he said... Hey, uh, I've got a, a Zoom H4N recorder that I'm not using anymore. Could you put it to good use? And if so, just let me know and I'll just send it to you. So yesterday, or it was the day before, it was on Saturday, I got a box in my mailbox and inside it was this. It looks brand new. I mean, it looks not a scratch on it. A Zoom H4N recorder. So that's what I'm using right now. Hopefully it will it will turn out good and I'll have nothing but good things to say about it. It's going to make um, doing field interviews or remote interviews or even just remote podcasting a whole lot easier than carting around a mixer and, a, and microphones and a laptop just to have the little standalone recorder. So I really, really, really want to say thank you to Craig over there at Patreon. Who He's a podcast listener, and he obviously supports the show. And he supported the show in a big way by sending me this little present. So thanks, Craig. And any of you who might want to be um, support the show in a more concrete way than just listening, and I'm, you know, I'm happy that you're out there listening too, but if you want to you know, throw a few bucks in the tip jar, as it were, you can go to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And you'll be in that little, that little club over there with Craig and the rest of the gang. 
All right, what I'm going to do today is attempt to answer some questions. Uh, a few episodes ago, I said, hey, if you've got a question, send it to me. And I've gotten a couple. Um, so this this may seem a little disorganized because I have in my right hand my iPod where I've been flagging these question emails. So I'm going to be pulling them up one at a time here and just addressing the questions that have been sent to me uh, off the cuff. I have not made any notes and I've actually thought very little about the answers to these questions. So I'm going to do it by the seat of my pants. So here we go. Let us begin with, I got this question from Sherry. And I, again, when I read the questions, I'm going to paraphrase a great deal. Uh, good evening, Brad. After abandoning chords for a few years, I'm trying again. And let me just stop right there. If you're abandoning chords, it's probably because you're finding them too difficult to play or you're playing alone a lot. Because if you're alone, you know, there's no need to ever back anyone else up. So, you know, if you're learning, you could be playing melodies and, you know, any kind of music and never really have to play a chord. So maybe that's what Sherry's doing. I'm not sure. Um, back to her email and question. I'm trying again. So she's going to tackle chords again. I always did okay with two finger chords. But after four years of playing mandolin, my first and only instrument, I was determined to progress to movable chords. Uh, let's see. Google directed me to your blog post, Applying Leverage to Mandolin Bar Chords. I really like your approach, but am having some difficulty, which is, I believe, due to my smaller hands. Is there an adjustment I should make to make bar chords easier than the way you've described in your article? You've helped me a bunch with pick, uh, you helped me with pick direction a couple of years ago. I'm hoping you won't mind giving me input on this issue. Thanks a bunch, Sherry. Okay. She touched on a couple things here. Um, obviously, two-finger chords are easier than three-finger chords, which are, therefore, easier than four-finger chords or five-finger or six-finger chords, um, for those of you with six fingers. But she says, I am determined to progress to movable chords, and then she referenced an, an article that I wrote called Applying Leverage to Mandolin Bar Chords. And for those of you who have never seen that, that originally came out, it was part of a now-defunct mandolin player newsletter that I used to produce called, called Mand Mando University News. And it was a monthly emailed-out PDF newsletter that I used to do. And this was back in the days when I had written Mandolin Masterclass, Mandolin Training Camp, Mandolin Excursion. It was sort of, I was just beginning into the video lessons thing. Because there are a couple of issues of Mando University news that uh, talk about the first videos. But I did this little article um, just showing how I played bar chords and how different it is 
or how different my approach to a bar chord on a mandolin is compared to what you see with many guitar players. And I'm not going to talk here about how to do that. I'm just going to say you can um, get that article, which is you download the, the newsletter that it's in, uh, Applying Leverage to Mandolin Bar Chords, and I'm going to tell you how, to, how you get there. You go to bradleylaird.com, and then you go down. You'll, you'll find little banners across there about banjo and jam survival and mandolin and all this stuff. There'll be, there are two mandolin sections. The first one is play the mandolin. That's a bunch of free mandolin lessons, and it leads you many other places. The next one down is my mandolin books. So uh, if, you, if you take a look at that thing, go to that site and you're going to find other. I think, it, I think it actually says on the menu at the top, more. When you click more, you will find, it says Mando University News Newsletter Archive. That's where they are. And I think I did, a, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 issues of that thing. I don't remember. Um, you'll know when you get there. They're all there, and they're all PDF files, and you can download each one and read some of my Mando-centric thought that I was writing at the time. And one of those had that Mandolin Bar Chords, applying leverage to Mandolin Bar Chords. I will also, to make it easier for you, for the, on the show notes page for today's episode, I will put a link directly to that article. So you can see how I tackled bar chords. I'm not saying it's the only way. And, and I will say this, based upon the neck shape, the profile of your mandolin neck, you might do one of several different methods for playing bar chords and chords in general. And here's what I'm talking about. My flat iron mandolin has a very, I would almost call it a sharp V-shaped neck. And that is not very comfortable for planting your thumb on the back of a V-neck and trying to clamp down and play bar chords. So you really have to use sort of an alternate position. You've got to let let the uh, the V of the neck rest between your the big knuckle on your thumb and your first big knuckle on your first finger. It kind of sits in that little V, and that changes your hand position a little bit. So V-necks, you know, I, I suppose that's why I developed this method of playing bar chords. If you have a nice, smoothly rounded oval-type neck where, you know, it, it feels good to to actually press with your thumb. Maybe you could play it more like a guitar player would. Um, but just remember, a mandolin is a mandolin and a guitar is a guitar. But anyway, let's get back to her email. Maybe I'll actually um, answer the question to the best I, of my ability. Let me find it again. I closed the mailbox. All right, let me go back to it. Okay, here we go. Let's see, where's my reply? Okay, 
so she's talking about she wants to tackle um, bar chords. She specifically mentioned those. But what she's talking about are, you know, three and four finger chord shapes and saying that, well, her hand's too small. And I've heard that a lot of times, you know, because people try the two finger G, then they add the ring finger. Now they're up to three fingers and then they're trying to stretch that pinky to get the, the big bluegrass Bill Monroe style chop. And it is tough. And I've said this in one of my videos. I think it's in the Sally Gooden chords and rhythm. Um, video lesson, which is a freebie, by the way. You can, you can just go over to my website and go to the Play the Madeline page, hit the videos, and look for it. It's I think that one was a free lesson. And I said, you know, well, first of all, you're putting your fingers down in the wrong order. You know, well, you learned index, middle, ring, and then pinky, but it's actually easier to lay them down in the opposite order. Put your pinky on first, then put your ring finger on and get a real comfortable position there, and then make your index and your middle finger do the contorting. Make them reach back because they're more talented fingers. You use them for more intricate tasks, and they've got a little more side-to-side -side and movement ability and flexibility. They're a little more talented than, than the ring and the pinky. So if you put them on in that order and reach back, force the index and the middle to do the harder work, is what I'm saying. That's described in that video. But she still makes a, a good case that, you know, chords, <laughs> you know, four fingers is more difficult than, than two. First, you're applying more pressure, you know, four fingers requires more downforce than two. Uh, so hand strength is part of that. And I would say one possible solution there is be certain that your action is set up well. Be sure your mandolin is set up well. If you're having to work too hard to press the strings down, maybe you're using strings that are too heavy or your nut is too high or your truss rods out of adjustment or your bridge is too high. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard to press them down. And of course, fingertips, as they toughen up as you play a while, makes it easier to compress the strings the necessary amount. All right, now, back to her, the answer. Oh, I, I did reply to her, and I gave her a very short and succinct answer, and I hope she appreciates that I'm now elaborating on it a little bit. I wrote back, and said, hi, Sherry, have you watched this video? And then I put a link to a video of mine. And the, I'll put a link to it in the show notes page as well, but it's easy to find. And the video is Chop Chords for Small Hands. I did a free video lesson which again, you can go to bradleylaird.com, go down to play the mandolin, click on the videos link near the top, and it'll give you a list of all of my mandolin videos, both the free ones and the ones you have to buy. There's a free video, Chop Chords for Small Hands, and 
then there are there's one or two I can't remember if it was one or two more that I show a whole bunch of other chords and basically I wasn't sure if she had seen that yet and she responded to me and said yes I've watched this video um, unfortunately unfortunately I only play on my own and occasionally in church therefore chop chords aren't my interest However, I would like to be able to sing primarily old-time country playing movable rather than two-finger chords. Okay, and I replied back to her and said, well, so I'll just read you my exact reply because the lesson says chop chords. Well, here's my reply to her, and this will make perfect sense to you now. Bear in mind that a so-called chop chord is just a chord. If it is short and percussive, it's a chop. If not, it could be a beautiful ringing legato chord. All those chord shapes in chop chords for small hands work in both scenarios. It just depends on how long you let them ring. No diff otherwise, Brad. So I don't want you to be misled in thinking that because the title of the video says chop chords for small hands that we're talking strictly bluegrass here. We're not. You can certainly chop them off or you can let them ring. You could hold them down and do cross picking across them. You could brush, jam, you know, there's a lot of ways you can play a so-called chop chord. So don't be misled by the word chop. It's just a chord shape, and the chop chords for small hands, those video lessons, teach some different chord inversions for the same chords that, you know, we play all the time in all sorts of music, and, but they're closer, the, the notes, the finger placements are closer together, so you don't have to make these big crazy stretches. I'm not saying that they're all just like ridiculously easy to play. Some of them, you know, you're going to have to work at a little bit. But they're all smaller and they're all compact. And, glory be, they're all movable. That means we're not using open strings. And that, see, that's the problem with the two-finger chords. You play a two-finger chord, you're going to have some open strings in it. Well, now you can't move it. If you move it, you've got to do something to take care of it and move those open strings with you. Well, the chop chords for small hands, go watch the free video if you're a mandolin player and you're trying to move, you know, do what Sherry is doing. Watch that one. If that's helpful, download the other ones. You know, it's there to help you play. Doesn't matter if they're percussive and choppy or, you know, ringing and whatever. They're perfectly valid chords but they are they have a smaller footprint you might say so you don't have to have big hands or you don't have to be able to make that big little finger stretch to do these chords so scope that out and sherry thanks for uh sending that in because i know you are not the only person with that question all right back to my questions well, let's see gotta dig over here into my un red folder nope I already I moved them they're in the flagged folder 
Okay, let's see here. I, sh I suppose I should go in order. <laughs> I'm already out of order. Um, doop, 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 doop. Okay, let's go with Tom. Tom K. I've mentioned that, that uh, there are two Tom Patreon supporters. And one is Tom K. And Tom K sent me this. Hi, Brad. I'm one of your Patreon supporters, and I'm glad I am because I always look forward to your show. Thanks, Tom. I've I, oh, this blew me away. I couldn't believe this. I have been to your farm when you had your bluegrass festival. Me and my wife had a great time and ate some killer barbecue. And you know what? I'm I'm sad to report, Tom. I don't remember you. I was so busy when we had the bluegrass festival here a couple years running. I was playing in playing in a band. I was trying to keep six bands happy and run sound. And I don't even remember talking to you. Maybe, you know, if I met, come down to Pat's place sometime or, or and reintroduce, I just cannot place you. Because I talked to so many people at that festival. Plus, it's been a couple of years ago. But anyway, glad you enjoyed the barbecue. Um, that, that guy was good. Anyway, here's his question. My question is how often to change my banjo strings. I heard an interview on Picky Fingers where the picker said he never changes his strings until they break. Then I had a luthier say every six weeks with heavy use is the magic time. So what is it? Um, I practice a few hours each day and David Ellis, uh, David Ellis, who I interviewed, I think about episode 10 or 12, somewhere along there, David Ellis was my teacher up to a year ago when I moved. So Tom must be up around Atlanta. And then he goes on to say, and I thank him for this. Everyone needs to sign up with Patreon to keep your show on. Plus the freebies are cool. Tom K. All right, Tom. So let me answer your question on strings. I probably already answered this. If you stringology 101, that episode, it's been a while ago. Surely I talked about how often to change strings. Um, you might go back and revisit that episode and also the, the episode called, let me see that banjo. I probably talked a little bit about it there, but let me just, since you asked the question anew, let me answer it. How often do I change my strings on banjo? Not very often because I'm not gigging. I'm not doing banjo gigs. I, I haven't been the banjo player in a band officially. Well, I was for about six months or a year in the late 90s um, with Super String Theory, but it was 1978, 79 was the last time I was officially a banjo player. I'm kind of like Del McCurry in that respect. I, I was eaten up with the banjo and the idea of being a banjo player, but I, I got uh, roped into being a mandolin player and seriously enjoyed that, but I've been a closet banjo player, a porch picker. I still play banjo a lot, but I don't play it out with people. I will sometimes take it to a jam session just to annoy other people. Um, I've taught a lot of banjo lessons over the years too. 
Um, but anyway, because of that, the strings last a lot longer than they would if you're out playing barbecues and sweating all over your instrument and spilling beer on it and, you know, being exposed to humidity and things. So if what I would suggest you do is change them when they look nasty, you can look at them. They will begin to get a kind of a blackish corrosion look to them. They just won't be as shiny and as bright as the day you put them on there. And that's a sign that they're going south. Look down around the bridge. Because a lot of times your fingers will be touching here and there around the bridge. And crud will build up around that area. And if just look at the string. And do you see any little stuff hanging from it, you know? Or dark patches where it's it's corroding and oxidizing um the fourth string on the banjo is the beast that will go dead quicker than any uh some banjo players uh, will just change the fourth they'll they'll buy more fourth strings than they do the other ones and i'm talking banjo players who gig all the time like jim duck adkins I observed him for 27 years, us playing a lot of gigs and doing a lot of rehearsing and a lot of jamming on the side too. And he wasn't the kind of guy that was like changing his strings before every gig. He's not that guy. What he was doing, he would do his string changing at home mostly, uh, but he would break them. When he broke one, obviously it got changed. So it gets real confusing because you broke a first string at this gig and the next gig you broke a third. And, and it goes on like that where they're in constant turnover. And I have seen him just change a fourth string just to wake the banjo up and give it some of that bottom end because the wound strings go dead sooner than the plain steel. So... You know, to be honest, I don't know what the answer to your question is. I think, you know, that general advice of, I don't know, six weeks is, you know, that's probably pretty good advice. Um, I have left strings on a banjo in excess of a year. Two years, maybe, playing at home, you know, and it's mostly sitting in the closet, that sort of thing. But... Um, if you're playing gigs, and if you're, even if it's just a weekly thing, you know, if you're going to a weekly jam session, then, you know, you might want to change them every two months, you know, about eight, eight times. I've never been a big fan of the sound of brand new strings. I think they mask the true sound of the instrument because they're so bright that you get a little distracted by the sound of the strings. To me, this is particularly true in mandolin and guitar that I put a brand new set of strings on and they're just too trebly to me, too, too much zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
or probably in the winter, they're going to last longer. And then they begin to gradually go downhill. And that is so gradual that you will forget how good those strings sounded, let's say, at the four-hour mark, where they're, they're stretched out good and they've lost some of that overly bright sound and they're really sounding good. But then they, you know, they degrade little by little by little by little. So, you know, it's, it's your call as to when to change them. If you put on a new set and it's shockingly good sounding, well, you probably proved that you waited too long. You're going to have to figure it out on your own, I hate to say. But definitely, most definitely, if they're rusty, black, cruddy, you know, change them. Just change them. They're cheap. Banjo strings are ridiculously cheap. So, uh, you know, every six weeks is probably okay. All right, so uh, moving on to the next question. Let's see here. This is from, I don't know his name because it doesn't say. I think his name's Dave. Let me look down here where he signed it. Yeah, David. Okay. Uh, do, 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 do. Hello, Brad. Just finished the Jamandments book. That would be the... 10 Commandments Discussed free ebook, which all of you can get. Simply go to uh, payhip.com slash Bradley Laird and scroll down through the products and you'll find the 10 Commandments Discussed free ebook. It's uh, You just leave the price set to zero and you'll get it for free. If you want to throw me a little tip, you know, chunk in 10 grand or something, that would be cool. I'm not going to complain about that. He says about the Jamandments book, first, I like the opening page calligraphy. As an amateur calligrapher, I enjoy the work of others. I have to confess, uh, David, that is not my calligraphy. That is a, shall we say, calligraphic styled font on my Macintosh. So I don't know, I can't remember the name of the font. It is, might be called Blackmore. I, I can't recall. But yeah, I'm, I'm into that uh, calligraphy stuff too. I'm not as good at it as I was back in high school. I used to practice that stuff. Here lately, I've been, uh, I've been trying a thing, and this is sort of a, I guess, sort of a psychological experiment where I had this idea. I read a book one time on handwriting analysis, and I, was, I started analyzing the handwriting of all my friends and family and people at work, I'd say, here, uh, here's a piece of paper and write, write me a sample and I'll analyze your handwriting for you. And I would, you know, look for all the signs of a psychopath and, you know, people that weren't held enough as a baby and things like that. And then I would give them a little report. I was, uh, it was just something kind of fun to do. And I thought, well, if, if your personality is exhibited in your handwriting, then maybe you could modify your personality by practicing handwriting of the style of the personality that you want. In other words, you know, some of these signs in your handwriting, supposedly, I don't know if it's bunk or not, but I think there's something to it. I think certainly your handwriting does express, you know, things about you. Because you drew it. I mean, you wrote it, so it's saying something about you. 
But I had this idea that if you practiced really good handwriting of maybe a person who has a very pleasant, friendly personality and you practice writing in that manner, then you would, it would work in reverse and you could, you know, improve your personality or your, your psychological traits or whatever by in the reverse. So handwriting therapy, you might say. So I've been practicing using um, a very archaic script form called Spencerian script. And I just encourage you to look it up. There's some good YouTube videos of some people demonstrating. Um, it's very elaborate cursive writing. It's much more elaborate than Palmer or, you know, like standard business script, that sort of thing. It's flowery and it is beautiful. And I got interested in it because I found some old letters written by my great grandmother. And I swear she must have had some training in Spencerian script. Really fascinating. All right, let's go back to the email because I've forgotten the question. I don't know if there even was a question. Well, let's see. Uh, da 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 da. Like the. Let's see. Where's the question? Calligraphy. Mm -hmm. ah, it's really more just comments and stuff. Anyway, it's just enjoy your writing style and your graphic skill. Thank you, David. Ah, here is a question. In the PS, he said, I would like to get all your stuff, but without duplicates. It would be helpful to know which videos are duplicated in the packages that I already have. So let me explain this. And here I'm talking about mandolin instruction videos that I have created. And I'm also speaking about Clawhammer banjo instructional videos that I've created. When I filmed the majority of them, not, not all of them, but the majority of them, I was doing it under a contractual agreement with Watch and Learn. So technically they owned the videos. They did own the videos and they paid me to create them, edit them, deliver them, create the PDFs, create the tracks that went with them. And then as they, they sold them, they marketed them however they wanted to through their own website, which at that time was called freemandlinvideos.com. And then I was compensated with a royalty, a percentage of the sales. Well, eventually we sort of reverse that where it's the exact same video lessons, but I sell them on my own site and I pay them a royalty because they own the content. They own the, that actual video. So getting to his question about packages and how does he make sure he doesn't get duplicates? One of the things Watch and Learn did was they sold many of their videos, guitar and drums and electric bass and banjo, all this stuff. They would sell a six video lesson package. So it would, you know, you would buy six at a time and you, you saved some money. You basically paid for five and got six. So a lot of these videos were sort of organized in groups of six. 
But over time, a video, I would do a lesson, and it just didn't logically fit within one of those other packages. For example, I had a, a mandolin improvisation package. I had a songs package, which had six tunes. You, every lesson was learning a different tune and variations of the tune and so on. There was a beginner package. There was a package I had called um, Mandolin Navigation, and it was six lessons that had to do with really learning how to understand how the fingerboard is organized. And it included lessons like chord triangulation. Um, I forget exactly which ones. So here's a guy who has some of these packages and his question is, when I look at your list of all your videos, how do I know, you know, which ones I already have and which ones I don't? And so here's my answer uh, that I sent him. Regarding the video lesson packages, any packages you have already will have a title for each video. So like if you bought six, you know, the beginning package and it was on a DVD, as each video plays, the title of that lesson comes up. It might simply be called Beginning Mandolin 3 or something, but they all have titles. And the little booklet and the PDFs all use the exact same titles, and I've never changed the titles to any of these videos. So here's back to my reply to him. Any packages you have already will have a title and I use the same titles on my master list of all videos, so it's just a matter of don't buy the ones you already have. So, you know, you might just need to go back and look at the packages that you have. If you watch the first few seconds of the video, the title is going to pop up. I used to edit those, and I, I put the titles in there right at the start. And if the title isn't there, look at the PDF that goes with it, because the title is definitely on there. Because there may have been some real early videos that we didn't actually put the titles in the video itself. Um, anyway, I, I don't think it's going to be too difficult to figure out which ones you already have and which ones you don't. And then I said, um, have you seen the lesson plan slash checklist on my site? It makes it a whole lot easier to keep track. You just print it out and check off the ones you have. Um, and they are in the order that I suggest people study them. Not, not everybody, because maybe you're really good at chords already and you might just skip over some of those or, you know, you've got just killer versions of Salt Creek and Blackberry Blossom and you skip those two. You may miss my, the things that I was teaching in those lessons that didn't have anything to do with the song. But what I'm saying is, this list doesn't mean everyone has to follow it in this order, but if you have no other guide, using the lesson checklist will help you. And, and it, by the way, the lesson checklist also includes all of the free videos because I did a lot of free videos for these things too. And if you're finding them on YouTube, you will not find them in order or with any of the explanatory graphics and like chord charts and tablature that went with them. The best way to get them 
is to go to my own site, bradleylaird.com, go down to Play the Mandolin, and click the videos link, and you're going to have every video lesson I've ever done. And there is a link on that page to the checklist and lesson plan. Or you can just use that page. That page that lists all the videos is the same list. It's not as it's not set up as nicely for just printing out with little check boxes and things like that, but it's the exact same order. So that that listing is my suggested order. Okay, so that hopefully takes care of that question. Uh, let's see here. What else we got? Oh, a couple of these I may have to wait on because they're just too crazy. I mean, too, like it would take me an hour to talk about it and you might not be interested in, in the subject. Okay, here's, here's one from Brandon. I was asked to play all the music at my friend's wedding. And there is only one book I found for mandolin wedding music. I'm not sure how much money there is to be made, but it might be worth looking into. Basically, it's a it's not really a question. It's sort of a suggestion. Hey, Brad, you might want to produce mandolin, uh, you know, wedding music arrangements or something. Um, anyway, it is a question that comes up and you know I, I probably mentioned this but I did play in the Atlanta Mandolin Society Orchestra for about five or six four five six years played mandola and I also played mando cello in that outfit and during that time period I was fooling around a good bit with um you know playing some string quartets and converting them over for mandolins and this kind of stuff Anyway, let me just read you my reply to Brandon. Uh, that is an idea I have toyed with, though I am absolutely sure there is no money in it. Ten years back, I played with the idea of assembling a mandolin quartet to do wedding gigs. And this is true. You know, trying to find another way to have another paying gig. Um... I thought, you know, a mandolin quartet would be something you could sell to brides for their wedding. Um, I had access, before I moved to the sticks, to some good players in the Atlanta area and had a closet full of old Gibson mandolins, mandolas, and even a K4 mando cello. Which, by the way, I do not have the K4 anymore in case anybody wonders. I had to... Uh, had to pay off my second mortgage, so I had to sell the Gibson uh, K4 Mando Cello. Love that thing. I still have visitation rights. I, you know, I sold it to a friend of mine, so I still get to see the thing. What a, what a glorious instrument that was. But anyway, they come and they go. Continuing in my answer, I ordered some easy quote unquote string quartet folios, and tried to get this little group going. The music is there. Just get string quartet stuff and transpose or tab or modify as needed. Uh, bottom line, I never got all four people interested enough to move forward and never did it. Uh, solo, solo mandolin, perhaps with a guitar accompanist, would be the way to go. That's what I told him. But it, it does bring up the, the point that I think some bluegrassers forget about is that the 
the mandolins that we play today, and Lord knows I love bluegrass, they really weren't designed for that kind of music because bluegrass didn't exist when that kind of music, when those instruments were created. There was no bluegrass when Lloyd Lohr designed the F5. Now, thank goodness those two things came together, crashing together in the mind of Bill Monroe. Thank goodness. But I encourage everyone to explore earlier music with mandolins in particular. I mean, you could say that's true for guitar and other instruments too, but particularly the mandolin. Um, and there are these mandolin orchestras and mandolin quartets and, you know, look around. You will find them. Um, and it, it's, it's fun stuff to play. All right, let's move on to the next question. This is from Keith. Keith, I've been meaning to respond to this one. Hopefully, um, you have, maybe, maybe you've already solved the question. But basically, uh, my name is Keith. I'm from Marshall, Missouri. I am an aspiring picker. I have recently found your podcast and enjoy it immensely. Thanks, Keith. I was considering purchasing your bass course, but I don't have a bass yet. Can you give some advice as to the type of a bass a newbie should consider? I'm guessing an upright to use would be a three-quarter, right? I see them all over at varying prices, but I have no idea although I have heard you mention the K brand. Also, could a person start the learning process with a traditional bass guitar? If so, do you recommend an acoustic and or fretless? Thanks for your time. Love the show. Currently working on banjo and mandolin. Regards, Keith. Okay, I think I've probably covered this at some point. I know I talked about um, could you use the base instruction course materials that I have available. Can you do that with electric? I did talk about in an episode, but I don't want to make you go through 131 episodes or whatever we're up to 135 just to find what I said. So I'll just restate it quickly for those who are hearing it for the second time. Yes, you can use an electric base fretted or fretless and use the exact same material because the tablature and notation is the same regardless of whether you're playing upright or electric or one of these, you know, guitar type acoustic basses. You know, basically they put a electric bass neck on an acoustic guitar. I did talk about that stuff. Uh, I just don't recall which episode it was. It's been within the last 10 episodes or so. But yes, the material's the same, you know, because really what, I, what I'm teaching there is to play bluegrass-style bass lines. And it doesn't really matter what kind of bass you play bluegrass-style bass lines on. You know, if somebody's teaching jazz, you could play that on electric or upright. Now, your techniques are going to be different. I'm not claiming that... You, you know, you play them identically. You don't. There are electric bass techniques and there are upright bass techniques. and But there's some overlap. And certainly the notes and the majority of the note choices are going to be more or less the same. So 
hopefully that answers that question. Yes, you can use the same same materials. Um, prices. Look, I haven't bought a base since 19. Well, I don't know. It's been a long time. I, well, I say that. I have bought a couple bases and fixed them up and sold them to other people. I've probably had, I don't know, six or eight of them over the last 10 years, 15, 20 years. I don't know. I bought my first one in, I think it was 1978, a 1949K, paid 300 bucks for it. And I still am playing a 1949K. I'm not playing that same one, which I'm not going to tell the whole story of that. It's a different one, but it also is a 49K, which I think I paid 12 or 1400 bucks for. So the price had gone up a good bit when I bought the second one. Bottom line is I haven't shopped for bases really in a long time. I mean, I, I've seen students show up with bases, some Chinese made stuff, some Romanian stuff, some what I would call school orchestra type stuff like kneeling bases and things like that. And, you know, I know that there are bases that you can buy on eBay or Amazon or something for I don't know, 800 bucks plus shipping and stuff like, you know, I know they exist and I've seen some of these and most of them I was not very impressed with. Um, there are some older bases that are very similar to K's such as American standard. And I can't think of any others. Engelhart is certainly one because an Engelhart base for all practical purposes is a K base. K sold all their tooling and designs, etc. And Engelhart continued producing the same instrument. Now, Engelhart's moved forward in time longer, so some of the appointments, like the the type of wood they use for the fingerboard, might have changed, you know, the tuners, tailpieces, things like that. But essentially the Engelhart is a K. It's plywood base, plywood back sides top virtually indestructible and that is probably why they're so popular in bluegrass and they do sound good to me they've got a sound that i don't hear when i try a, a carved top bass that is like you know more suitable for playing in an orchestra or playing with a bow and i mean you know you can debate this stuff endlessly but I've never been disappointed by the sound of a K bass. If it's set up well, has the kind of strings that I like, and I don't like all strings. I don't like super nails, uh, unless I'm going to play like 12-hour marathon jam sessions at a bluegrass festival. Then I do like them, but, you know, I'm a spiracore guy, domestic spiracores. Anyway, bottom line is, I suggest a plywood bass because... Bluegrassers drag their bases everywhere to festivals and jam sessions and have to carry them in the back of pickup trucks and things like this. And you will have less, far less chance of major cracks if you are playing a plywood or laminated construction type base. Um, I would suggest that you look at Upton Base. Um, and the, the reason I mention them is they, they imported a lot of bases in the white and were finishing them out. 
and then they started building their own bases. And the reason I mentioned them is because our bass player in Cedar Hill, Fred McIsaac, he bought one. He bought one a few years before he passed away. And so I got to hear that Upton. I got to hear his K, which was mild K. That's how I got rid of the first one. Is his his base was destroyed in a it fell off the roof of the car on the way back from a festival and was run over by a truck. And I felt sorry for him and sold him my that was where my original 49k went. Fred was playing it. So some gigs he'd play the K, some gigs he'd bring that brand spanking new Upton. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was made of poplar, yellow poplar, I think. And so I got to hear him side by side with the same type of microphone, same type of, you know, he would, he had this, like a, one of these sure kick drum mics that had a little clamp and it, it attached to the tailpiece. I got to hear this bass back to back with that K and I loved the sound of that Upton. That was a good sound of bass too. So you might scope out Upton. Uh, as far as prices go, I mean, just depends on how much money you got. You know, you can spend all the money in the world on a bass, but I have not been overly happy with some of the real super bottom end junky basses. I mean, I've seen some real junk. They look like basses, they just didn't have any sound to them. You know, the top's too thick because they don't want the top to crack up, so they make it too thick. Heavy, um, I don't know. Okay. Last part of your question, you ask about three-quarter. Yes, three-quarter size bass is the standard bass. That's what everybody's playing, three-quarters. There are four-quarter basses, and you practically have to be on a stepladder to play them. They are seen sometimes in orchestra situations. Uh, the standard full-size bass in everyday use is a three-quarter bass. I got in an argument one time with a, not really an argument, but I kept having this same discussion with a guy that was taking lessons from me. And uh, he kept saying, well, I, you know, I, I, well, I don't want to get a three-quarter. I'm going to get a four-quarter bass. Because he was thinking about getting a bass. I was like, get the three-quarter. That is the full size. That's the big one. That's the one everybody plays. Mine's a three-quarter. Everybody's playing three-quarter. Now, there are obviously half sizes, one-quarters, and I don't know if they go smaller than that. For kids, you know, if you're joining an orchestra program, you can't have a bass that, if you can't reach the top of it, how are you going to play it, you know? So there are half-size basses, and uh, you'll see them sometimes... You know, I've been at bluegrass festivals and seen people dragging around a half-size K. And they sound pretty good, you know. So sometimes you can get away with a half. You have to crank the end pin up taller, you know, extend that end pin out. Uh, but you could even get away possibly with a half-size bass. But I wouldn't go smaller than that if you're an adult. I would definitely, if you're an adult, get yourself a three-quarter size bass. And... Uh, also, of course, you need a truck or a station wagon. Actually, that's not true. I've, I've had some mighty small cars that I've carried my base around in, and they will fit in a Mini Cooper. I didn't have a Mini Cooper, but one of my students did. I've seen a base actually go in and the doors close. I've carried them in a 78 Dodge Colt. I've carried them in a, a Toyota Matrix, and I have been lugging mine around 
uh, lately in a Ford Fiesta, which is a tiny little car, but that base goes right in there. So um, you do have to protect bases from rain. So don't be one of these people carrying it around on the roof of your car. All right, so hopefully I've answered Keith's question sufficiently there. And have I got everybody? I think I might have knocked them all out. Oh, yes, James. If you remember from a few episodes ago, I talked about James in Guam. And I thought, well, it never occurred to me that anybody actually lived in Guam. But he asked me some questions. Um... He bought a banjo. He's out there in Guam, and he's he got it on Amazon. Here's what he says. I got my banjo from Amazon, and it arrived well-packed and in good shape. I read many articles on the maintenance of banjos and started checking my new banjo out. The material seemed to be very good quality, but the assembly, uh, which was done in China, is very bad. My resonator was sitting... My, let's see. My resonator was sitting on the banjo out of round with the rim. It looked really bad, so I removed the resonator. The nuts that kind of... Basically, what he's describing is that the, the resonator was kind of crooked. And it looks like they were put on with brackets and screws. And they were bent. Hmm... This is very long in detail. This is the one I probably should just write directly to him. But basically he gets down. If, if you follow the string height down the neck to the 12th fret, he says, I assume these strings should be about the same height as the thickness of a credit card. So he's talking about how high should the strings be above the 12th fret. And he's guessing that the thickness of a credit card. Here's what I would say to that. That is too low. That is too low of an action. My, my thinking would be more like an eighth of an inch above the 12th fret. And because banjo strings are really light and they're really slapping around a lot. And if you've got the strings way down low, like the thickness of a credit card from the 12th fret, you're going to have all kind of buzzing and rattling if you play with any kind of force at all. Um, if you move up where the strings, it, toward the end of the neck, like fret 21, 22, as you get to the, to the tone ring area, I would think a solid quarter of an inch is probably a good place to be up there. Could be a little less, but you, you know, you want to eliminate noise first, and then you can start backing down and lowering it down and seeing how comfortable can you make it and still not be producing fret noise. Anyway, um, my suggestion, Jim, is to uh, re-listen to or listen to for the first time the uh, episode I did called Let Me See That Banjo because I talk all about that kind of stuff. Um, you can check your truss rod too, which I'm probably described in that episode, but I just want to remind people that it's pretty easy to check a truss rod and that is use this use one of the strings as a straight edge so you take one hand and you press the string down at the first fret and you take your other hand and you press it down at the highest fret whatever it is it depends on your instrument let's say you're at fret 20 
you press them down and you look in the middle or what I always do is I use my thumb and my little finger and I will push the string down in the middle. What you're looking for is how much clearance is in the center. In other words, you've got the string down on the frets at the ends. Well, how much clearance is in the middle? None or a lot. I mean, if there's, if you've got an eighth of an inch of clearance in the middle and you're contacting, let's say, fret one and fret 15 or 20, and you got an eighth of an inch in the middle, you've got a serious forward bow on that neck and you're going to need to correct that. If, on the other hand, you press the string down at both ends and you're in contact at the first and maybe at the, let's just say that 20th, and you are in contact in the middle, well, then you've got either some back bow or a perfectly flat neck. So, my suggestion is go back, take a look at, or re-listen to Let Me See That Banjo, and hopefully that'll sort out some of those problems for you, Jim. Uh, let's see. And I was surprised. Nobody, even as a joke, uh, sent me an email saying, who cut your hair, or why do you think you're smart enough to have a bluegrass podcast? I was kind of hoping some wise guy would ask those, but there's still time, because I can still do episodes in the future. Hopefully this episode has not been too ridiculously boring because um, I have been all over the map here. I did decide that in the last episode I got to talking about writing a song uh, called Harvey Johnson. And Harvey Johnson, I, I was talking about how sometimes a little explanation for introducing a song helps the meaning of the song, and, and it occurred to me that it also says that maybe you're not the greatest songwriter in the world, because, you know, if you have to explain, it's like telling a joke. If you've got to explain the joke, maybe it ain't that good a joke. So I will admit that potential weakness to my own song, Harvey Johnson. But it is more powerful of a song if I state a few things at the beginning. So I thought what I'd do to go out this episode is state those couple things about this song that I think makes it a lot more understandable and proves what a lousy songwriter I was on this particular song and then just play you the full song. So here's the deal. Back in 1994, there was some major flooding in South Georgia. The Flint River, the Chattahoochee, just had a lot of rain, kind of like what's happening out in Houston right now. Had a lot of rain, Albany, Georgia, flooded. You know, the downtown, rivers, Flint River's out of the banks. There was a lot of flooding in South Georgia. Well, I was parked up there high and dry in Atlanta and was just seeing these pictures, you know, pick up the newspaper and there's a, you know, photos of all this flooding going on down in South Georgia. Because Atlanta is right at the headwaters of the Flint. It's just a little drainage ditch up there. Not a lot of flooding going on around Atlanta. Okay, so one day I pick up the paper, and there is a photo somewhere down the bottom half of one of the sections showing a flooded cemetery and caskets floating, bobbing up out of the ground uh, because uh, they're airtight and buoyant. So you flood a cemetery, and some of these caskets just manage to work their way to the surface and float away. 
and there were these city workers in Albany, Georgia, who were tasked with the job of taking a John boat out there and trying to round up these caskets and, you know, herd them back into to shore. And one of the workers um, was suing the city for the mental anguish of having to do this job. Anyway, I just kept looking at that picture thinking, what a weird thing. And But I kept thinking about, well, I wonder who's in that casket? Who exactly is that person we're, we're looking at here? I, and I, I had the thought, well, maybe they always wanted to be a sailor and they finally gotten their wish. And so I wrote this song about this imaginary person who always wanted to go to sea and be a sailor and finally got his chance. So here's my crazy bluegrass song, Harvey Johnson. Y'all have a good week. All his life, Harvey Johnson dreamed of sailing on the sea to ride the waves and catch a western breeze. As the captain of his ship and the master of his feet But Harvey Johnson's dream had to wait Through thirty years of farming, raising kids and corn His dream of sailing faded and was worn But beneath his dusty overalls, somewhere in his core Harvey Johnson set out from the shore Somewhere living all his dreams Harvey Johnson's ship sailing true Somewhere on the seven seas Harvey Johnson sails across the blue said wasn't meant to be that rain started falling as they laid him in his grave harvey johnson never rode the waves but that rain kept on falling in july 94 farms were lost it kept raining more floods covered everything and washed it all away including harvey johnson so they say somewhere Living all his dreams, Harvey Johnson's ship sailing true. Somewhere on the seven seas, Harvey Johnson sails across the blue. Somewhere living all his dreams, Harvey Johnson's ship sailing true. Somewhere on the seven seas, Harvey Johnson sails across the blue.